Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we're going to look at the topic of theonomy, the big boogeyman of theonomy, which basically just means God's law. Theo, God, nomos, law, God's law. And I think this is going to be a multi-part uh, series. And it was kind of motivated by a few conversations that I've had with folks, both in person uh, and via email or over the phone. Um, And also a recent podcast episode from Nine Marks, and I listen to their podcast fairly regularly. It's the Pastors Talk podcast uh, with uh, Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman. And on the most recent episode, I I believe it was uh, last week's episode, they interviewed uh, Carl Truman on his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I've read that book. It's a very good book, and I respect Carl Truman, love his work. I respect all of those men and love all of their work, but I I had a few things I wanted to say about uh, some of their statements regarding God's law and theonomy. Again, there seems to be this tendency um, amongst uh, evangelicals, maybe very well-known evangelicals, uh, kind of the, the big evangelical community to kind of poo-poo uh, theonomy and uh, kind of mock it in some ways. And I don't think that's really helpful or even accurate. But before I go into the clips I want to play from that podcast, I want to give a brief uh, introduction to what theonomy is. I just want to spend a few minutes on that because some of you listening might not have ever heard of that before. What does that mean, theonomy? Well, first, like I said before, it simply means God's law. And the idea behind this is that there is always a law over any land or society. Whatever society you go to, there is a law, obviously. Uh, There's always a law and there's always a God of that system. And I use that lowercase g, God of the system. So if you go to perhaps a Muslim country, it might be under Sharia law. If you go to maybe a communist country, you might have a Marxist kind of law. Or if you were to travel back in time and go to the Canaanites, they would have a certain kind of law, or the Egyptians, or the Babylonians, and usually it's tied to the beliefs, religious beliefs, cultural beliefs of of that land. What the people believe and what they value is going to determine and influence what laws they make, all right? So that's just kind of the basic premise, and it's true for whatever land you are in. There's always a God of the system, the the highest authority of that system or the system uh, from which law is derived. So it's not really whether there's going to be a law or a God of law, but which God and which law. And it really comes down to asking the question as to how do we live in our society? How do we structure our society according to what pattern, according to which morality? Because there's different kinds of moralities, right? What do we value? What do we protect? What do we punish? And many think that uh, theonomy involves neglecting the gospel and focusing on simply taking power and passing laws that are godly laws. Now, there's different spectrums of, of theonomy, just like anything, right? You have to kind of define your terms. But essentially, all it really refers to 
kind of in a basic premise is that we want to use scripture. We want to use the Bible. We want to use God's law, his, his, his nature, his morality, God's righteousness, his standard of behavior. We want to use that in how we structure and order and organize our society as best as we can. We want to draw principles. We want to, we want to value what God values. We want to hate what God hates. We want to follow his instructions when it comes to how do we live as a greater society. And this is nothing different than uh, a person becoming a Christian and they ask themselves, okay, I want to live as a Christian. How do I in my individual life do that? Or as a father or as a, as a wife or as a mother, husband, you know, how do I raise my family? I want my family to um, do the right thing. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good mother. I want to order my household properly. How do I do that in a God-honoring way? Or it could be a business owner. Hey, I just became a Christian. I want to manage my business in a wise and biblical, godly manner. How do I do that? What does it look like to love my neighbor, to take care of my workers, uh, to be a good steward, um, and to take care of my customers? And, and you just take that same those same questions and you just apply them to any area of life. And so, yes, if, you know, God willing, if the governor or the president becomes a Christian or senator becomes a Christian, they should ask themselves, okay, well, how do I uh, honor God and love my neighbor as this person that has authority or even a police officer, right? How do I wield this power correctly and do the right thing? What does it mean to make a good law? versus making a bad law? What's the standard that I'm going to use to making good laws? And so the idea behind theonomy is not that we're going to save society by taking control of the government and, and making the laws and then everyone will become Christian. That's not the idea at all. The whole idea, though, is that we want people to become Christians. We want everybody to become Christians. We want people in every area of life to become Christians, and we want them to live out the Christian life accordingly. And yes, we do want kings and those in authority to become Christians and then make good laws so that we can live in peace and have a flourishing, prosperous, healthy society where the gospel can be preached and taught safely and without interference. Okay, so that's that's basically the idea. Gospel, The gospel of Jesus Christ impacts every area of life. It impacts economics, arts, music, entertainment, education, law. We want all those areas to reflect the glory of God. But that's only going to happen, of course, when people hear the gospel and repent of their sins. Uh, so as the, as the people change, the culture will change, right? And as the culture changes, then the law will change accordingly. It's, it's kind of like the downstream of it. That's the end result. That's the fruit of seeing gospel change in the culture. And so even though that might not be happening right now, that always remains our goal. That's, you know, that's our that's our that's our destination. We we want to eventually get there. Uh, it might not happen in our lifetime. That's okay, but that's still the goal. It's it's very simple, I think, to to kind of grasp this long term, um, long term planning or long term thinking. And that's actually going to come out in this uh, podcast clip. I'm going to I'm going to share with you shortly. And, but before I do that, I just want to read a passage I think is. This really sums up this really well. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it's verses 5 through 8. It says this, See, 
I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? End quote. So that's Moses talking to the people of Israel, referring to the, the law that he was just given. And he's telling Israel that they're going to be an example to the nations. And people in the land, in that area, they should, they should want to live in Israel because the laws are so good. They should look at those laws and they should see the wisdom and the glory of God. And they should even want to model their own laws after Israel. Um, you know, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So there's a beauty to, to this and they will see it and be drawn to it. That's, that's Israel's law, and that's how the Egyptians and the Babylonians are supposed to look at Israel and to see it. Uh, so even, even in, you know, from this passage, we see the law given to Israel is not just for Israel. It's for them at first and directly, but it's supposed to have a ripple effect and an impact on the entire region. So with that, I'm going to play for you a clip. Now, this podcast episode, like I said, it's really, they're interviewing, uh, Jonathan Lehman and, and Mark Dever are interviewing Carl Schumann about his book uh, on individualism and kind of feelings and kind of being whoever you want to be. So it's about 35 minutes long, and I, I really encourage you to listen to it. It's a very good um, episode, and I, I, I love Carl Schumann's book. I think his book is so spot on. But I just disagree. For whatever reason, they get onto the topic of theonomy. And I just disagree with where they take it. So, so in this clip, uh, starting at timestamp 1515, they're going to begin talking about civil Christianity. Let's uh, hear what they have to say. We know we're strangers in the world. That's endemic to the Christ who's been rejected that we follow. So we understand all of that. But what's going on with the idea that we should, as Christians, how do we follow the Lord when we are such aliens and such strangers? And I think some of us in the West had become accustomed to thinking of ourselves as being far more at home than we ever really were. Yes, I, I would agree. I think uh, I, I've sometimes put it like this, that the situation in the West, the historical norm in the West is a theological exception. We've had 15, 1600 years where Christianity and the culture have tracked pretty closely. And Christianity has been in some ways the dominant view of the culture. Now, one can quibble over the nature of civil Christianity as opposed to vital evangelical Christianity. But by and large, there's not been any tension between the churches and the wider culture. I would say there's very little in the New Testament that would have led us to have expected that. Mm -hmm. The model of Christianity in the New Testament is a much more, in some ways, antithetical one to the broader culture. So what has been theologically normative is historically exceptional. Yeah. I'm going to pause that for a second. So he starts off, Christianity is not the theological norm in the West, you know, or in the world, right? It's only been 1,500, 1,600 years. And a part of me wants to say, well, well, give us time, you know, think, let's think long term here. Um, the West was the very first place to 
truly like embrace the gospel. There's other parts of the world that are embracing it. And it takes time for the culture to, to change. Where else would it start? Uh, if, if the West is the first to embrace it uh, into the European continent and into England and then into the United States, Canada, and Australia. Uh, the gospel changed the culture in the West. It led to our common law tradition. And, and that was Carl Truman that was a- answering that question at the very uh, last part of that clip. Um, and it led to the rise of good laws rather than pagan laws. But what really strikes me and concerns me is the statement that there's very little in the New Testament that would expect, that would lead us to expect this kind of victory or influence or, dare I say, domination, uh, dominion of the gospel. But I do have to ask, though, on what basis does he say that, that the New Testament has little to say on that? Uh, First of all, the New Testament depicts the current state of things when the gospel is first being proclaimed. So so obviously, it's a church that's in infancy. The gospel has not yet fully been proclaimed in the world. I mean, it's still that very first generation. So I would not expect the gospel or the New Testament to show us, you know, the whole empire of Rome uh, in submission to God. But but I think there's a lot of hinting, and I think actually there's a lot of very explicit sign pointing regarding this. I'm going to give you just a couple passages that, that come to mind. First is, is Acts 19, 18 through 20. Acts chapter 19, 18 through 20. So here's what it says. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, I just have to ask, I mean, was this a wrong thing? And that's a rhetorical question because obviously it's not wrong. But we see that the gospel is having an economic impact. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of of magic arts and scrolls and books being burned, voluntarily, of course, voluntarily, and the word of the Lord is prevailing mightily. So we see this victory happening uh, wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, and it's changing things. It's changing things. And we see this in the very same chapter, a few verses later in 21 through uh, 34, Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but essentially in Ephesus, a riot breaks out. And here's why. I'll start in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And they go on to have a, a riot in Ephesus after that. Now, would Paul say, well, now, hold on, hold on, hold on, guys. I'm not trying to get rid of the temple of Artemis. No, of course he, of course Paul is happy about this. This is, this is how it's supposed to happen. I mean, think about it. We don't worship Artemis today. Why don't we? How comes the temple of Artemis has fallen? And is no longer being, uh, how come she's no longer being being worshipped and, no, and there's no more silver idols being sold and, and fashioned? 
because the culture changed. That's what we want. Okay. That's, that's the whole point of this. And it does take time, but this is, this is the result of the gospel. And, and even, you know, Demetrius, he's recognizing that the temple of the, of the goddess might be counted as nothing and she might be deposed. Yes, God willing, she'll be deposed. God willing, she'll be deposed. That is exactly what we want to happen. It's going to happen through the preaching of the gospel. And that might take a while, um, but that's okay. You still have the goal in mind. You still want for things to change. You, you, you want this culture to change and to hear the gospel. And then you, that's, that's what you want to happen. You don't want it to stay antithetical forever. Uh, and there's always going to be some things that you have to constantly reform and preach against. But the goal is to conquer through spiritual warfare. And that brings me to the next passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5 says, we're, we don't wage warfare uh, according to the weapons of this world, right? But, but through ideas. We take every thought captive, as, as Paul says, bringing it into submission. We have 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 27, where the Apostle Paul again says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, in a sense, they already are under his feet, but they are being put also under his feet. It's an already and not yet kind of thing. Something's already happened, but something's also uh, being worked out. And again, we see in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 26, verses 19 through 29, this is close to being one of the most explicit examples of a New Testament apostle trying to convert a government official. In this passage, Paul has been arrested by Governor Felix. Well, first it was Governor Felix, and then it was turned over to Governor Festus. And now King Agrippa is talking to, to Paul. And Paul says in, in verse 19, he says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Okay, so, so he wants everyone to perform deeds in keeping with repentance repentance. And that would be applicable to whatever station in life that a person might be in. And they con they continue the conversation. And then in verse 27, Paul directly talks to King Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. So he wants everyone in that room. Uh, he wants the governor. He wants the king. He wants them all to become Christians. And he says, whether short or long, hey, you know, today or tomorrow, um, I want that all to happen. And what would be the expectation that all those men would just stop being governors and stop being the king? I think that the expectation is that they would start doing things rightly. And we see in Acts chapter twenty. Four. Now, this is before King Agrippa arrives on the scene, but here he's talking, Paul's talking to Governor Felix, 
Okay, so Felix is there, and it's chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. So here's verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So the point here is that Paul is talking to Felix, the governor, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So now, if he's talking to the governor about this, what, what can you? What does righteousness look like for a governor? Does it look like bribery? Does it look like abusing your power? What does self-control look like? Does it look like chopping people's heads off in fits of rage? Does it look like Nebuchadnezzar throwing people into the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to you? I mean, obviously, righteousness and self-control um, will have, uh, they mean something uh, for someone who has power. Right, and there's a standard by which that person should reign as an authority. And then the last passage I want to bring up is First Timothy chapter two, verses one through four. And this is a very well known passage. And here's what it says: First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what's the goal here? What does he what does he want? We want to lead a quiet and peaceful life. We want the gospel to be able to go forward. Um, but that can't happen in a country full of wicked laws. The, the church needs freedom of speech, freedom of worship, f- freedom to assemble in order to be able to lead that quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. And we want the kings to reign well and to maintain peace and to maintain um, a righteous peace, to do good, and to punish evil so that uh, the ground is laid, that the gospel can flourish um, without, without hindrance. So that's, that's what we're, that's what, I don't know, that's what we're saying, that's what I've always believed as a theonomist. I just don't see how you can say that the New Testament does not talk about the culture being changed, and that this will eventually impact the greater society, including those who actually wield power. I mean, yes, we don't see that happening uh, yet in the book of Acts, okay, but it it did happen a few hundred years later in the Roman Empire, which, which we'll get to in a little bit. Might not get to all of this in today's episode, but uh, let's move on now to timestamp 1746, where they really take a couple pot shots at at theonomy. So let's uh, let's go ahead and start there. So when's the rise of theonomy these days uh, among conservative, yeah. theologically conservative Christians? And not just Presbyterians, Carl. I mean, we're seeing it among Baptists as well. Yeah, and, and the Catholics actually have their own equivalent yeah, in, in integralism. Right. Yeah. I think to a large extent, I would say it's a movement of reaction. At a moment in time, particularly in Protestantism, well, when you feel something's being stolen from you, you get angry and you react. And I think Protestants, Peter picking up the sword in the garden. Yeah, and I think Protestants for many generations in America thought they owned the country, mm. and now they feel it's being stolen from them. And that's precisely the kind of moment when you get retrospective, nostalgic, extreme reactions, exertion. <laughs> so let me stop there. A moment of reaction. Get angry and you react. Peter picking up the sword in the garden. 
making it sound like we're having a temper tantrum. That's not at all what's happening. That's a straw man. They're just building a straw man of theonomy, and they're just whacking it down, setting it on fire. No, the, the fact is that the reason we're reacting right now is because we realize that we, us Christians, the church has been lazy. We have disengaged from the civil discourse. We have failed to disciple the nations and teach them to obey Christ. We failed to do that in the United States. We have given our children over to Caesar through the public school system. And and lo and behold, they're becoming Romans. So I, I, the country's not been stolen from us. We gave it up. We surrendered it a long time. And that all began a long time ago. We sat back and we coasted. Uh, in the military, we use a, a phrase called being fat, dumb, and happy. Basically just sitting there, doing nothing, paying no attention, um, and then all of a sudden something bad happens to you. So we were fat, dumb, and happy until we realized that we had just given up everything, that we were surrounded, and actually had been undermined from from within. We, the church, dropped the ball on this one first. Um, I remember a quote from the book Moby Dick from uh, Herman Melville, which there's a scene in which the, the main character, uh, Ishmael, is listening to a sermon. And here is what the author says. This is a quote from uh, one of the chapters in Moby Dick. It says this, What could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. From thence it is the storm of God's quick wrath is first decried. And the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence it is the god of breezes, fair or foul, is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. End quote. So the, the, the preaching of the word, the pulpit, is what steers the culture. And we began preaching a watered-down uh, gospel, a progressive, liberalized, non-biblical gospel, Many, many years ago, we were not teaching uh, the nations or discipling them. We completely abandoned references to, to God's law, to his morality and his standards of righteousness, and applying them to every area of life, and we sat back and coasted. And so now, guess what? We're coming to realize, many of us are coming to realize just how m much we messed up as a, as a church. Um, in the past. And it's perfectly reasonable to correct wrong behavior, to realize a mistake and to seek to correct it, to do something that we should have been doing all along. Uh, to give another example, using the Lord of the Rings story from, uh, from Tolkien. Remember in the story, um, were the people of Rohan, were they simply reacting in anger to Saruman? Uh, war was upon them whether they liked it or not. And even before that, when the king was under the authority or under the sway of Saruman, uh, Grima Wormtongue was accusing Eomer of, uh, of warmongering. He's like, ah, you're, you're, you're being a warmonger. There's no war. Saruman's our friend. He's our ally. This, this, what are you talking about, these orcs coming into the land? That's not, that's not true. That's false. That's, false, uh, that's false news. That's fake news, right? But the point is, is that they were at war, and they finally came to realize it, and then it came time to actually do something about it. So uh, we're not picking up the sword in the garden, as Jonathan Lehman 
kind of said on on the side there um because we're not trying to advance the kingdom by physical warfare we are actually trying to refocus ourselves on what is the goal the goal is to see christ proclaimed in the land to see the land repent and perform the deeds and stop polluting the land with the blood of innocence right innocent blood an, an abomination to the lord right? The land is going to vomit us out and, and God will judge us unless we repent. And I want to see that happen. I want to see us repent. I want to see the United States course correct and change its direction. Uh, but that first has to begin with what? The pulpit, the the prow of the ship that leads that leads the world. So that's, okay, let me continue here and, hit, and let them finish their, their thought. Yeah, uh, and I think... Sentiment replacing piety. Yes, yes, uh, and, and anger replacing careful reflection and thought. And we live in an internet age where two dozen guys on the internet who make a lot of noise can kid themselves into thinking they are about to take over Congress for Jesus. Okay, hold on a second. All right, okay. Anger replacing careful reflection and thought. I don't think so, because... Theonomy requires applying the principles of God's law in our lives, in every area of life. It requires actually great reflection and thought. I mean, it's a lot of work to go through. Like, okay, God's law says not to muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Paul helps us and, and shows us that applies to paying your pastors. Okay, well, how else does that apply? What other areas of life does that apply to? It, it applies to many. So let's work it out. Let's Let's live it out. What does it mean to have equal weights and measures? What does it mean to have um, equal weights and measures as a father to, when treating my children or as a business owner or as a government official or as, you know, the Federal Reserve chairman? You know, what does that mean? Uh, it's not a temper tantrum. It's understanding our law and our history. Um, and it's a realization that laws are becoming wicked and that maybe we should say something about it. Maybe we should advocate for true justice. It's not whether but which, right? Like our culture is advocating for justice, environmental justice, social justice, racial justice. So you're going to get some kind of justice, uh, quote unquote, right? It depends on what's the standard and what should we as Christians be advocating for? God's justice. We know that we're not going to save people by passing laws, but we want to show people that God's ways and God's laws are wise and good and right and true. And we should want them to see that and to see that they've gone so far astray that they need to repent and that God will judge them and they'll repent and turn away and then perform deeds, as Paul says, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. And that means changing your behavior and maybe as a culture, changing your laws. And then I do find it interesting that Truman says uh, two dozen guys thinking that they are about to uh, conquer Congress for Jesus. So what about those dozen guys that were standing there when Jesus ascended into heaven? And before he did that, what did he tell his disciples? He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? Okay, so that means the Roman Empire too, right? So... You're saying, Jesus, that 11 guys, because remember, one killed himself. So 11 guys are mostly blue-collar workers, mostly fishermen. Later on, they're going to get a, a seminary graduate. They're going to get Paul uh, to help them out. So 11 guys are going to conquer the Roman Empire, all right? And does that mean that they're going to rule it themselves? 
that they're going to become the emperors and the governors? No, but they're going to disciple the rulers. They're going to talk to the Felixes and the Festuses and the King Agrippas of the world. They're going to teach righteousness, and they're going to want them to all be like Christ. They're going to want them to all come to a knowledge of the Lord. And then what would they do? What are those men, those government leaders, supposed to do when they become Christians? Well, hopefully they're going to start doing things that are right in accordance with God's law. So in 300 years, Rome was conquered. The temple of Artemis is now gone. There's no more silver idols being sold. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So at the end of the day, uh, it's just ironic that he that he says, uh, you know, 12, 12 men can change the world. And they can in time. Well, it's, it's not going to happen. But we're able to generate these believable myths for ourselves because of the technological environment we now live in. Believable myths. I don't think the Christians in history were kidding themselves. They're not believable myths. Um, Emperor Justinian changed the Roman law as a result of being influenced by Christianity. Uh, and we'll, I'll talk more about this in a future episode about Roman law being changed to a more um, godly kind of law. And then you have Alfred the Great in England, who forms his common law and the laws of England on the Ten Commandments and the book of Exodus, which is actually the preamble to his law book. Uh, he did that for a purpose. He wanted to base his society upon those laws. And it had an impact that we're feeling even to even to this day. So they're not myths. Uh, I, I mean, the point is that we're thinking long term here. And we've got a lot of work to do. And it might be another 300 years before we see America um, kind of turn back to ways of righteousness and, and things that are good and right and true. Okay, so there's two more clips I want to get to. So we're going to make this episode a little bit longer just to finish this up. I don't really want to split this into two episodes. So here is the, uh, the next clip. The things that shape how we think about the world, the things that give us our moral vision, if you like, mm -hmm. they're not arguments. They're not legislation. Not that those things are trivial. I was saying to somebody earlier today, good legislation isn't going to change the culture, but if it protects children, I'm all in favor of yeah. it. Yeah. These things are not unimportant, but the things that really shape how we think are artistic. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second and, and just say a few things. So he says that, you know, good laws... Hey, that's great if it protects children, I'm all in favor of it. And again, the question is, uh, by what standard? Why should children be protected? And what is the authority and the source of law that you're going to use to protect children? Um, in the Roman Empire, the Roman law had uh, great authority for fathers. It was the, uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, the uh, pater familias, right? where fathers had ultimate authority in their household uh, to the point that uh, a father could kill his unwanted children, uh, usually not his adult children, but, uh, but infant children or, or newborn children, if they were defective, deformed, uh, if he didn't want them, he could just uh, uh, place them outside the city and expose them to the elements, to wild animals, and that they would just die. Maybe some would get picked up, uh, maybe some would become slaves, uh, but they, there's definitely the risk of of death there, and that wasn't that wasn't a problem. That wasn't against the law. But interestingly, in 374 A.D., it was made illegal by Emperor Valentinian I, 
who was a Christian. So we have a Christian emperor who decides, you know what, it's actually probably not good for fathers to kill their children. Uh, children do have uh, rights as well, and, and fathers don't have absolute authority over the lives of of their children. So uh, there you go. There's a, a perfectly good law that protects children, but that was given by a Christian emperor because he's, he was trying to live out his Christian faith as someone who bears the sword. Uh, so at the end of the day, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's easy to just poo-poo theonomy and say, well, you know, theonomy is, is all bad, it's stupid, it's silly, they're putting all their eggs in one basket, all they care about is the law. But then on the other hand, you say you want good laws that protect children. Well, which one do you want? The point is, as Christians, we're not saying, uh, as theonomists, that the law is going to save us or that all we care about is changing the law. We want to change the whole culture. And with that, one part of that is the laws. Uh, he mentioned uh, the arts. We should, we, should, we should change those too. And I do completely agree 100% that arts are very influential. The stories that we tell are very influential um, and they need to be redeemed. We need the right to good stories. So let's do that too. Uh, does, we have a whole body of Christians, right? And some are going to be called to serve in the economy and uh, businesses. Some are going to be called to uh, serve in the arts, entertainment, and music. And some will be called to uh, serve in the law, whether they'll be lawyers or they'll try to be legislators. So let's do the, the, the whole picture here. Now, it's interesting that what we have in our culture today is some bad laws that are coming up. And this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, theonomists are becoming a little bit more vocal is because we've been resting on our laurels for a long time and the laws have been pretty good and we've been living off of the past, um, enjoying the past and the, and the fairly decent laws that have been in existence uh, when our country was founded and for quite some time. So we need both. We need, we need both good stories and good laws, and we need Christians in every area of the culture. Again, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, they, they pursued good stories, and they saw a need, and they saw a problem, and they met that need, and they decided to step into that, and they dominated. They did very, very well in that arena of storytelling. But then you have men like like Wilberforce, who was in Parliament, and he was a Christian, and he uh, stayed in there, and he fought real hard for decades to end the slave trade, and he finally did. He was able to end the slave trade in England through uh, through his efforts, and he was a devout uh, a devout Christian. So uh, these are all things that just I think get easily swept aside and ignored by those who uh, want to criticize theonomy, but. Uh, anyways, so let's continue. Uh, I mean, we, we're in a kind of degraded culture on that front, but really, the, these are the people who shape the way we think about. The Someone world. popularly said, "You know, let me write the songs, and I don't care who writes the laws." Mm. Was that somebody popular saying? Yeah, anyway, wasn't Keith Getty? Was it? No, no, no. <laughs> this is before Keith. Okay. Um, there, I was told by a former clerk of a chief justice who <clears throat> greatest advice he gave to this clerk he had was the chief justices. Of the United States Supreme Court, that the greatest advice he gave to this clerk, this young lawyer, was have a good story. Mm. Story trumps law yeah. every time. Yeah. So let's let's kind of 
break that down a little bit. He quoted someone that said, you know, let me write the songs and I don't care who writes the laws. And he wasn't sure who that was. Well, I did a little research and it's quite ironic. It was a man named Andrew Fletcher who's attributed to this quote. And he was a member of Scottish Parliament. So he's a politician. In the year 1678, he, he entered Parliament. So late 1600s, he was a member of Parliament. He's a Christian politician. He wrote a couple of books. One of them is The Discourse of Government Relating to Militias. And Thomas Jefferson praised him for his work. Uh, some of his works included phrases such as well-regulated militia. And some argue that our uh, concept of or our phraseology of a well-regulated militia was borrowed from Andrew Fletcher. And the point I bring up in, in saying all this is that you can have both. You have a politician um, who's a Christian who's advocating for godly laws and writing books about godly laws. And he is the one that recognizes and says, let me write the songs and and I don't care who writes the laws. He, he recognizes that songs are important. But even though songs are important, he's not saying that the laws aren't important. That's coming from a man who's a politician that said that, a Christian politician. So you can have both. You can pursue both in a culture. Um, I want good music too. I want good art. I want good business practices. I want good businesses like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby. I want all kinds of things in the culture. Um, I want good sports, but I also want good laws. So let's. So what does that mean? What does that look like? What does a good law look like? Let's and let's pursue that. Okay, one more clip uh, at the very end of the uh, podcast. They say a few things that I com- 100% completely agree with, and I, I think demonstrates I think some of the inconsistency in what they're what they're saying about theonomy. So let's let's go to that clip now. A couple of things. One, I, I, I mean, one can immediately default to the promise and say, you know, we know how the story ends. The church is going to win. Maybe not my congregation or your congregation, yeah. but we know the church is going to win. Maybe so, not my denomination my or your denomination. denomination. Yeah. yeah, but we know that the, the story, the, we know how the story ends. That can be a little glib and trite, but it doesn't make it less true. Right. In the shorter to medium term, I think I would suggest we need to reorient how we think. The example I use in, in class is I... I I put up on the screen early in my humanities course a picture of Cologne Cathedral. Mm. And I say, you know, Cologne Cathedral, I think they began building it in around about 1244. Didn't finish it till 1888. Wow. There were a couple of hundred years when they suspended work because of the Reformation. Etc. But, but one thing we know for certain is that the first man who laid the first foundation stone at Cologne Cathedral knew he would not live to worship in that building. But still he thought it was worth doing. And I think one of the things that, that pastors need to focus on today is cultivating a long-term mindset among their congregants. Make the congregants realize that, that what we do today is not so that we win everything a week on Wednesday. We do things today so that our grandchildren still have a gospel to grasp hold of and still have a church to attend. And so I would encourage people to stop thinking short term. Don't worry about what's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Act now in a way that's laying a foundation 40, 50, 60 years from now. Okay, so that is very encouraging and I very much agree 100% with what uh, Carl Truman just said there. And that is, 
that's exactly what theonomists hold to. We have a long-term mindset. Uh, we're playing the long game here. We understand, yes, uh, there's a lot of work to do, and we do want laws to change, and it might take a, quite a while. It took, oh, I don't know, about a uh, hundred years from around the founding of our country to end to end slavery. It might take a hundred years to end abortion, and if abortion was was legalized in uh, in uh, the 1970s, it might be another 50 years before abortion is finally uh, made illegal throughout all 50 states. That doesn't mean you stop looking at the goal. The whole the point of theonomy is what is the goal that we are looking for regarding uh, law. What is a good law? How do I craft a good law? So what what am I aiming for? I might not get it today, might not get it for 10 years, and maybe I might not see it in my lifetime. But what will what should my grandchildren pursue? Uh, how should they view law and uh, and politics and authority, right? So I completely agree. Just consider the just history, right? The Anglo-Saxons. Um they were a pagan tribe of people when they invaded England towards the end of the Roman Empire. And St. Augustine, not not the Augustine from, from Africa, but another Augustine in the late 500s, uh, was one of the first men to attempt to convert the Anglo-Saxons, and he was very successful. And he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury um, in England, right? Late, late 500s, early 600s. But then fast forward about 300 years, and then you have Alfred the Great, uh, one of the greatest kings of England, and he made his law code, and he started it with the Ten Commandments, and the Mosaic Code from Exodus was his preamble to the laws of England. And that took 300 years after Christianity first arrived um, in England. So things do take time. That doesn't mean that we don't have a goal in mind. We, we have a goal in mind, and we're taking little steps to, to get there. Um, and one of the goals is to see that good laws are made. Um, and obviously, since we live in a democratic society, those laws are never going to exist unless the people's minds are changed, right? And so we have a lot of work to do. We have to show the culture, that God's law is a better and wiser way to live and supports human flourishing and will lead to better outcomes um, and is more just than the current laws being advocated for by, uh, you know, environmental justice and the green movement and social justice and CRT and and all those other kinds of justices, quote-unquote, right, or socialism or Marxism. Or communism, any of the that those kinds of economic justice, right? Uh, stakeholder justice or stakeholder capitalism. So everyone has a form of justice that they're that they're pushing, and we have to show as Christians that we have a better way that's going to be more just, more wise, more beautiful, and and better for the culture. And we need to convince society of that. And obviously, we have to call society repentance because they're not going to believe it. Uh, they might they might say, "Hey, it looks kind of good." Uh, maybe we'll try it out, but ultimately we want them to recognize that they have sinned, they've been engaged in wickedness, they need to repent and perform deeds in keeping with repentance, as as Paul says. 
and we want that to be true of citizens who vote and also governors and politicians who serve in office. We want them to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So I, I very much respect with these men, and and maybe they would agree with some of what I what I'm saying. Maybe they're they're thinking of a different kind of of theonomy or folks that are that are being more um, extreme or are imbalanced. But I I don't think that that these men, uh, Carl Truman, Jonathan Lehman, and Mark Dever, are being entirely fair when they're criticizing theonomy and i think they've they've kind of set up a couple straw men to uh to knock down so anyways i still encourage you to listen to their podcast and read carl truman's book it's a very good book again i've i had it for a while i've read it myself i encourage others to read it uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there but uh hopefully we, maybe this brings some clarity to some of the differences that that are going on and uh i hope that this uh helps in some way so in uh, the near future, we'll continue with uh, looking at theonomy. I have a lot more to cover uh, that I want to bring up in future episodes. So uh, thank you for tuning in, and I hope that this was a, a blessing to you. If you have any questions or thoughts or comments about uh, what we've just talked about or what uh, uh, Carl Truman uh, talked about, uh, please email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send me messages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just look for the uh, Governed by God podcast or the GPG podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, take care and God bless.